Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and chips and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my sidekick, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a wonderful chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. We do have a great chat room, and it's it's just a wonderful group of people that teach me a lot all the time. I've been thinking about that a lot recently, just how much I have learned through the radio show, uh, through some of the guests that you've brought on, some of the interactions we have in the chat room, and how much it has changed my life. I mean, I'm doing some intro philosophy courses now online, and it's all as a direct result of some of the things that we have covered on the air. So it's a, it, I think Provocative Enlightenment is a fabulous show. The chat room is absolutely marvelous, a great group of people. I'm learning nonstop, and I do hope that you will come and learn with me too. So that is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right, my wonderful microbiologist spouse <laughs> is now working on the process of thinking. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I'll learn how to think eventually, honey. <laughs> no, I didn't mean it to say smart, Ellie. All right. In today's spotlight, I wish to discuss the idea of being in nothingness. I should have a little interlude here. I handed you Sartre's book, Being in Nothingness. What? You did. That was about 15, 20 years ago, and I read the first paragraph and didn't understand. Actually, I understood each word individually. (laughs) I had no idea what it meant when it was strung together. So, yeah, I've got quite an education in front of me, don't I? But you've moved a long way since then. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, sometimes there's a difference between hard science and there is, you know, between thinking about thinking. All right. I just read a wonderful philosophical discussion regarding the question of being and nothingness. Why is there something instead of nothing? If you enjoy philosophy, I highly recommend the book by Jim Holt, Why Does the World Exist? An Existential Detective Story. If you seriously give this idea some thought, you're driven to ask, why is this question meaningful? Altogether too often we take the obvious for granted. We may look around the world and see beauty and even find a moment of awe. But how often do we really consider the question, why a world at all? This why question typically leads religious people to God. But that's not a sufficient reason in and of itself, especially when they define their God with characteristics such as eternal and all-knowing. No, in fact, the solution God only begs more questions such as, Why did God create the world? I mean, an all-knowing God knew in advance the outcome of this world. Who would suffer and what horror some may bestow on others? So again, the question, why, maintains its meaningfulness. There are those, of course, who insist that a reason for why, something instead of nothing, isn't a necessary or even a practical question. Many things occur without a reason, they insist. The universe just is. This too, however, seems unsatisfactory, at least to me. Perhaps it is in my nature to seek some causal sequence, for even the Big Bang theory in physics offers at least a beginning. That said, one can fairly ask, what preceded the Big Bang? It seems that the question... Why does the world exist is essentially a personal question. Why do I exist at all? If an all-knowing God created the world, why? Is it possible that we're nothing more than some sophisticated version of iLife, creatures in a computer simulation? Are we possibly only characters in a dream, and all of this world is but an illusion? 
There are many myths, stories, legends, allegories, and the like offered to answer this why question. But they all fail either when tested logically or they're simply tautological. I recently enjoyed a conversation with my friend Richard about this very subject. He grilled me on the logic of matters and finally then asked, Why do you believe? My answer was simple. It is because of the persistent anomalies, the miracles that defy explanation, many of which I've witnessed, that I believe. Richard remarked, We need a word or term for those persistent anomalies because they're everywhere. I agreed, and then he offered this term, Paulian Paradox. He explained, St. Paul said, Faith is the evidence of things unseen. Okay, so for me it is the Paulian Paradox that must satisfy my why inquiry. Perhaps in the end the finite has no way of comprehending the infinite. Now, I'm very aware that some of my associates, specifically those in the camp of the reductionistic materialist, may find this position hard to swallow. But then, as Soren Kierkegaard put it, these folks are often pharisaical scholars who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. My thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? You know, it is a great book, Jim Holt's Why Does the World Exist? I can recommend it too. It's a great way of exercising the mind in thinking stuff through. Um, yeah, it's just a fascinating book. It's given us great food for thought as we've you know discussed different aspects to it. I do like your Paulian paradox. I think I tend to agree with you there because um, when I look at things logically and you know atheism has a lot going for it you know there are lots of holes in religion every time you look around but then what is it that makes me still believe in a God and it is those experiences that you have those unexplained those things that go on um, that internal nudging I think is all part of it too so Yep, it's a fabulous book. I would recommend that you guys get it and stop and think, why do I exist? Why do you exist? Yeah, and in fairness, of course, the evolutionary psychologist would have an explanation for those inner nudgings that we have. But they fail at explaining, again, what we in the past have called anomalies, but today we just refer to them as Paulian paradoxes. I like that. Thank you, Richard. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way involving, involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Tammy wrote, I read all his book, Choices and Illusions, like ten times. I am now reading I Believe and I'm listening to the CD that came with it. I think something is happening. I am walking around with a smile on my face all the time. And I am trying the beaming light thing also and people are treating me differently. I have never had so many people saying hi and smile at me. For the first time I went to the store, I thought, well, people are just having a good day. But the next couple of days, it was still happening. I am seeing a difference in our customers' attitudes as well. I thought to myself, wow, this is real. So I know I'm on the right track. I am really excited about the process. Wanda wrote, I have downloaded the Intertalk Music and Nature tracks, and I'm listening and already see significant improvement. Zinnia wrote, Hello, Mr. Eldon and Mrs. Ravinder. I just wanted to let you know that I purchased the Intertalk Healing Trauma Survivors of Abuse program. I played it, and after maybe three times, I felt somehow different, stronger. I was able to finally verbalize what I expected from the person I was attached to and being mistreated to, mistreated by, without crying or sinking into depression. It's been transformational for me. I've now gone on to your learning CD and found myself having the courage to succeed in believing I could achieve something in my life. I was born naturally gifted in intelligence, skipped several grades till high school, and graduated early. But growing up in an abusive and unhappy home, somehow my gift diminished, and I lived in poverty with my children for too many years. God has gifted me with million-dollar creative ideas, but fear of failure kept me bound. I'm sending you tremendous bear hugs, you and Ravinder both. Thank you so very much for helping me climb back up. 
from a death battle with cancer, memory loss from a concussion, child abuse, and domestic violence, and low self-esteem. I will continue to do all that I can to be healed and continue to play your programs. God bless and keep you both for all the good you are doing. I love letters like that, don't you? I, I, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. No, no, absolutely. That's why we do what we do. There's your warm fuzzy for you know your pillow this evening. Yep. In some way, be. somehow, your life has made a difference. You've been able to go to the aid of somebody in need. That's what it's all about. That's the highest good in my view. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback, thoughts, and ideas. Now to today's show, Mind Shift, Breakthrough Obstacles to Learning and Discover Your Hidden Potential with Dr. Barbara Oakley. I've been looking forward to this show. I have to tell you, the book is Mind Shift. It's, it's an incredible read. It's a powerful read. It's a read I highly recommend to you, all of you. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Dr. Barbara Oakley is a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Her research involves bioengineering with an emphasis on neuroscience and cognitive psychology. Dr. Oakley teaches two massive open online courses, also referred to as MOOCs, M-O-O-C-S, Learning How to Learn, the world's most popular course and mind shift based on today's book. Dr. Oakley has received many awards for her teaching, including the American Society of Engineering Education's Chester F. Carlson Award, for Technical Innovation in Education, and the National Science Foundation New Century Scholar Award. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Barbara Oakley. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Eldon. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's indeed my pleasure. You heard me say I loved your book. I, 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 I love how you created the workbook aspect of the book as well. But before we get into it, we like to know three things on this show, Professor. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, please tell us, as a professor of engineering, and, I, and I'll, I'll pause for a second here. One of our former board members that passed away earlier this year uh, was the first female engineer to graduate from IIT. Um, and so, you know, I have a particular fondness, for, especially for women engineers. But as a woman engineer, what led you to the concept of mind shift? Well, I think it was because I was such an anti-engineer. I mean, I hated math and science when I was growing up, uh, and I was terrible at them. I, I flunked my way through elementary, middle, and high school math and science. But the the thing is, when I got to be age 26, I was getting out of the military, and I had trained as a linguist. I'd learned Russian. And I realized that you know, I, there was, like, no jobs available for me. Um, nobody, no recruiters were knocking on my door saying, we just got to get you in there with, with, our, <laughs> with your Russian language skills. And so I... I realized that by following my passion and doing what I really loved, I had inadvertently put myself in this kind of narrow box because I hadn't been will willing to broaden the kinds of things that I was willing to learn about. And when I finally realized that, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? I mean, I'd always pictured myself as this person who was interested in new new topics and broadening myself. and and so I finally realized, well, heck, why don't I try to actually learn something I think I can't learn, which is math and science, and turned out to be successful. So that's, uh, here I am. So you reinvented yourself, but now you have been nicknamed the female Indiana Jones. Please share with us <laughs> why that nickname. Well, I think it's because... Um, I joined the Army right out of high school and learned uh, um, learned Russian uh, in the Defense Language Institute. Then I ended up uh, out on Soviet trawlers up on the Russian Be uh, on the Bering Sea uh, working for the Russians. And uh, so I had some very good um, 
you know, when I have a glass of wine or two, I can, my Russian comes back very well, and I have some good stories about that. But then I ended up at the South Pole Station in Antarctica. That's where I met my husband. So I always say I had to go to the end of the earth to meet that man. Mm-hmm. And uh, and um, so kind of had a lot of different adventures uh, outside of academia, but I think that has really informed my work within academia. And I, I, I highly recommend it to academics to take a little break and get outside of academia for a few years because it can sure do a lot for um, lending some novel perspectives uh, to your creativity. And you're being a little modest. I think a, a, a major reason for the tag, female Indiana Jones, is your ability to take diverse information and knit it together in such a practical way that, that other people just fail to see. Uh, you're the problem solver, Indiana Jones, as well as that robust traveler, huh? Well, I, if I have a gift, I think it's the fact that I don't have a very good working memory, so I can't remember things very easily. If you give me a big list of things, I'll, I'll kind of look blindly at you. Uh, I'm not a fast thinker, so if I sit down to study something, it's not like I learn it instantly. Uh, it takes me a while. But it, it turns out that these kinds of things can be real assets if you're trying to look creatively at something that if you don't have a good working memory, you often have to simplify things, kind of dumb them down, so to speak, um, or come up with good metaphors to help yourself understand them. And that can help you see in elegant new ways and help you to explain to others in in very nice ways. So I think some of my, my worst attributes, the fact that I'm kind of slow at learning things and I'm I don't have a good memory, turn out to be really good assets. Um, And I think that if people in general realize that about themselves, it it, it can help them to to feel a lot better about themselves and be more effective in whatever they want to, uh, to work on. You have a metaphor, an analogy that I must confess, I borrowed just this last week. Uh in a conversation that I was in during lunch, having to do with fast thinking and what what we think of as slower thinking. This was a person who I was discussing things with that didn't think that they were really such a, a fast thinker. How about sharing with us the difference between the race car driver and the hiker? Because that's a very powerful metaphor. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, because sometimes when I'm teaching, uh, for example, I teach probability and statistics, and I might ask a, a sort of advanced question about Bayes' theorem, and it, I mean it's kind of technical, and it's it's a little hard to even follow um, when someone's asking a question about these kinds of things. But there's invariably someone in my class will raise their hand, and they've got the answer right off the bat, and I think that can be intimidating for other students because they it's kind of like, well, what's in it for me? I don't think that fast. I can't, like, get to the answer as quickly as these superstar race car brain driver uh, sorts of people. And But I think the way to think of it is this. When some people get to the finish line, in other words, they can get the answer really fast. They've got these race car brains. And other people, it, it, they get to the finish line, but they're much slower. They're, they're like hikers. But think about how a hiker experiences the path they go along. They can reach out. They can touch the leaves on the trees, smell the pine in the air, see the little rabbit trails, hear the birds. I mean, it's a much different experience than that race car driver blur and in some ways, that, that hiker experience is far richer and deeper. So I, I always think, you know, if you've got a hiker kind of brain, it, it's a little like my hero in science is Santiago Ramon y Cajal. And 
you've probably never heard the name, but he won the Nobel Prize for neuroscience um, back about 100 years ago. And he's known as the father of modern neuroscience. And what Ramoni Cajal said was, I, I was no genius. I got to where I was because, or where I am because I was persistent and I'm flexible in the face of data that says, oh, I'm wrong about something that I suppose was, was my hypothesis. He said, I've worked with many geniuses. And the problem with geniuses is they, they're so smart that they often are just very used to being right. And that means that they often, as they grow older, tend to jump to conclusions. And when they're wrong, they don't have experience doing too much changing of their minds. So they're inflexible about mistakes. So, uh, so I think if you have a hiker kind of brain, that's still okay because you can sometimes see things even the brilliant geniuses miss and you can flexibly adapt yourself and 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 find these kinds of um, interesting ways of doing things that even the geniuses can't see so I think there's there's just a lot of encouragement for uh, you know for people of who have all sorts of approaches to their ways of learning and understanding the world. That reminds me of Einstein's refusal to accept many of the principles of quantum mechanics with his God doesn't play dice with the world. So you're absolutely right. You can be the genius, the Albert Einstein, but if you're going to argue that that you already know everything or that you, you see yourself with such bias that you can't be wrong, well, then you've inhibited your ability to make discovery, and uh, you certainly have not done that in your life. I'm going to ask <laughs> you an aside question here based on, you know, uh, some other information that you have written, etc. Sometimes it's been received controversially. It has to do with nature, nurture, and for all intent and purposes, what people think of as an evil gene. Um why do some folks intentionally inflict pain on others? Well, it's it's a complex story, and um, we sure don't know everything. There's a strong environmental um, component of why some people are really malevolent. There's also, um, in some cases, a strong biological component. Um, interestingly... If you, uh, that psychopaths who come from very good homes, so they've had a good upbringing, good parents, um, very, they've had uh, good advantages from, their parents have plenty of money and so forth. Psychopaths who come from this kind of background often seem to have a strong biological push towards psychopathy. Whereas, individuals who come from a very disadvantaged background, they, it seems to be much more common that it's, uh, that it's something environmental that has helped propel them towards their antisocial ways. So, um, so it, it's a complex question. And then sometimes, um, really, um, there's also a mixture of people. Not everyone is a psychopath who does malevolent things. You can have people um, who uh, can present themselves in public as one way, um, and then uh, in private they're a completely, completely different story. Uh, so I think we're seeing some of that playing out now with the um, sort of public... Um, unveiling of a lot of behind-the-scenes um, uh, misbehavior, shall we call it, that, that's been going on on the part of uh, a number of very well-placed um, males in, in society, which is not to say that females aren't fully capable of also being uh, somewhat uh, in how they, they present themselves. But why do people do things like this? Um, and, and there's 
there's some good evidence that um, um, that people can really present themselves as just being the nicest people in the world, uh, and yet they have subclinical. Um, uh, they can show some subclinical manifestations of borderline personality disorder, and so they they can do a lot of really iffy things when they get around when when you might for whatever reason push their buttons or for example you can just say hello and that can push their button uh, because they don't feel like you should be friendly that day. Um, but but the reality is. Wh- what individuals like this can do is they can they can for example i was reading about this one fellow and he would take these young women he'd be really um nice to them invite them to dinner and so forth and then uh he'd get them alone and he'd aggressively move on them and if they turned him down he would go to the office and he would say this girl really put the moves on me and I had to shut her down gently you know but you watch out for her because she's she's really kind of weird and she and and what he would do is is lie about these women at least according to reports and and make it so that he was ruining their careers if they in turned the, him yeah. down in an attempt and, to alienate them yeah, why do people do things like that? It, it's a weird mixture of, you know, there's uh, there's some some evidence of some biological genetic components to this, and um, also I think that if you get away with it, it encourages you to um, to keep getting a little bit bolder. We live at a time that you and I could have a, an entire show on this, but I want to move to your book. However, we do have a commercial break right in front of us. So when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Professor Oakley's book and her techniques, Mind Shift. We're speaking with Professor Barbara Oakley about her work and book. You can learn more about our guest by visiting her website at barbaraoakley.com. Now we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest explaining fast thinking versus slow thinking. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there. Please do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor.
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Barbara Oakley about her work and book, MindShift. You can learn more about our guest by visiting her website at Barbara Oakley. That's O-A-K-L-E-Y, BarbaraOakley.com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is not just a new hobby of mine, but it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So we just played some of Sale, performed by AWOL Nation. Tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, that is such a good question. It just sings to me. I, I, I think it's got a, a great um, deep beat to it that somehow resonates, and uh, it seems to capture part of the zeitgeist somehow. Uh, blame it on my uh, ADHD, and I don't know, it's... There's some interesting research that shows that different people get that chill when they hear certain uh, music, pieces of music, yep. and other people can, uh, and, and we can see it. We, we can image parts of the brain that get the chill feeling, and other people will listen to that same piece of music and go, huh? It, it, I mean, it does nothing for them, and we still don't know why this happens, even for me. I don't really know why I'll why I'll listen to something and go, whoa, wait a minute, I really like that. Um, but sometimes when I do, I I find that it is renowned around the world, and lots of other people have had that same sort of feeling. Evolutionary psychologists might suggest that drumming beat has something to do with. Uh memes as dockings would say but you're right we don't know and we do we do see that that's very interesting all right let's let's go to your book because i love the book but we have we've had very little time to you know really talk about it um let's begin by having you define for us what you mean by a mind shift mind shift is just changing how you view what you're capable of doing and opening yourself so that you can see you can do and be much more than you ever thought, at least in regards whatever that particular topic is. Okay, I think you gave us an example of a mind shift in the very beginning when you were explaining to us how you became involved in this. So you came back, you were this linguist, nobody wanted you, you had to reinvent yourself. Is mind shift a part of reinventing yourself, uh, or is reinventing yourself a part of mind shift? I think the, the, the arrow goes both ways. As I, the more I've lived, the longer I've lived, uh, the more... For example, I did the the massive open online course, Learning How to Learn, which is the largest massive open online course that uh, anyone knows of. We've got 2 million registered students. And looking at these individuals who have learned 
something about how to open their minds and learn more about learning, I've just come to realize that I think it's really important now, especially with so many dramatic changes taking place in society that really are calling for people to change themselves through learning, that it's very helpful to know that it's it's possible to change yourself. And it's really helpful to know how to do that and how other people have done that. So you, you've got some ideas and models. Because sometimes people, they know they want to change from what they are, but they're not sure where they want to go. And I think sometimes just reading a book of possibilities and that also gives you some practical exercises and ideas about how to change yourself can be very, very helpful. Let me ask you this while we're on the subject, because mind shift really is about learning how to learn. Uh, among other things, uh, and reinventing yourself, uh, of course, as we've mentioned. But um, your course is available through Coursera.org. Is there a better place to go for that? Um, no, Coursera is is where it's at. It's through McMaster University. And so you can take everything for free if you want to. If you want to also get a certificate, there is a modest fee um, if you don't want to get the certificate, you can just still take all the materials. So it's um, it was a lot of fun creating the course. There's a lot of um, sort of funny video tricks that we play on people. And uh, so I think it's something that is actually quite enjoyable to do, not, uh, you know, not at all a burden like you might think. So uh, we had a lot of fun creating it. There's also a link on your website to your course. Does that lead to Coursera, or does that lead somewhere yes. else? It does nope, lead that to leads Coursera. To Coursera. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Your book tells stories of people all over the world who've changed themselves and their lives through what you term as a mind shift. So, Professor, how about you? Um, you, you, you gave us an example. Or you came back. You're this linguist. How did you? You know. I mean. What was the magic that changed your life? Well, I was lucky in that I went to the Defense Language Institute to learn a new language. And they have very good language study programs. So I learned at least how to learn a language. And then when I got out of the military and was trying to you know, decided to see if I could rewire my brain and learn math and science. Well, there was one way I had learned how to learn that I knew worked, and that was the way I learned how to learn a language. Mm -hmm. So I kind of took the same techniques and brought them over to, uh, to learning in math and science, and by golly, if they didn't work. And it turns out, of course they would work, because it's, they're based on neuroscientific, what we understand from neuroscience about how mm -hmm. your brain works and how you mm -hmm. learn. So that's why in the course learning how to learn, I just kind of separate these out along with my colleague, um, Terrence Stanowski, um, about we're co-instructors, and he's one of the world's foremost neuroscientists. And I think when you tease out, you know, how does your brain learn? Uh, how, when you practice something, what is happening in your brain? And when you lay out the ideas, they're, they're really very easy, very straightforward. How do you avoid procrastination? Um, once you begin to understand these kinds of fundamental ideas, you, you can start learning more effectively. So incidentally, procrastination, I think, is probably the world's number one obstacle to, uh, to to changing your brain, you know, to doing a mind shift. Right. And so uh, probably the best technique is just to do the poma, to a, do a Pomodoro, which is um, this wonderful, very simple technique um, invented by an Italian, Francesco Cedillo. And all you have to do is turn off all distractions, so nothing popping up on your computer, no little ringy-dingies on your phone, Set a timer for 25 minutes, 
focus as intently as you can on whatever you're doing for 25 minutes. If you get distracted, just bring your mind back. And then, and this is the most important part of all, when you're done, give yourself a little reward. So, like, listen to a song that's one of your favorite songs. Get get up and stretch and kind of, or chat with a friend, um, either online or in person. Um, take a five- or ten-minute break, and um, then if you need to, go back at it. And this technique is really powerful because it, because you're giving yourself the reward, it trains your brain to enjoy what it's doing. I mean, it takes some sessions to do this, but after a while you'll find that if you just sit down and set a timer, and the, oh, incidentally, there's some wonderful Pomodoro apps. Um, if you just set one of those going, um, you're off to the races, and you can get some stuff done that you really didn't think you could get done just by doing it in these little 25-minute um, burps of activity. Carrying the reward is an important part of uh, changing behavior. There's no doubt about that. I have to ask you this, uh, since you spoke of the Language Institute, Carl Schleicher, uh, Dr. Carl Schleicher, a late friend of mine, um, did a lot of work with uh, the Language Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. And at that time, the last time I had a conversation with him, um, we spoke about how they taught uh, foreign languages in such a short period of time. And, and, and he indicated to me that they were using 60 beat a minute uh, music, Adagio Largo music for brain entrainment and uh, some subliminal props and uh, et cetera. Do you incorporate any of this in um, your technique uh, or techniques, tools uh, that are used in MindShift? Not really. Uh, I haven't explored those, but I think simply the um, the ideas of, of chunking, which is creating these patterns that you can instantly pull into mind by through practice and repetition. Um, that is a extremely powerful tool, um, and also simply the idea of seeing other other people who have successfully transformed themselves, that's a great uh, great uh, motivational and inspirational tool as you might be starting to try to learn a new language, for example. Well, I, you know, I'm not taking a course. I have to be candid about that. I, I, I am going to take that. I, I think we can all improve how we learn. It doesn't matter how much we read or how much we study or who we talk to. And who knows? I mean, maybe I want to reinvent myself and become a, a race car mechanic um, or some such thing. This I do know. It's the world's biggest massive online course, Learning How to Learn. So I, I, I'm going to kind of take you to a side here now. The New York Times said uh, they did an article on your success with your online course. And and. Again, I mean, I love non-pretentious people, so I'm going to ask this. They wrote, quote, The studio for what is arguably the world's most successful online course is tucked into a corner of Barb and Phil Oakley's basement, a converted TV room that smells faintly of cat urine. At the end of every video session, the Oakleys pin up the green fabric that serves as the backdrop, so fluffy... I assume that's the cat. Doesn't ruin it. My question then, Professor, does Fluffy ever make an appearance in your course? Fluffy does not make an appearance in our course. But actually, I was just like, oh, no, please don't print that, you know, about Fluffy, because we'd just gotten back from, you know, uh, extensive one month in Japan and three weeks in Colombia, and we just got back home. We were frantically trying to clean up because there our guest person who watches Fluffy um, sort of missed a few things, and obviously we didn't quite get it all. But uh, so Fluffy has been immortalized in the New York Times, um, and she she doesn't really make an appearance, but. Um, our our younger daughter refers to her as I, I don't know if you read Harry Potter, but she refers to her as as the family Horcrux, 
<laughs> and uh, so she kind of um, uh, lurks in the background. She's quite happy to wreak whatever havoc she can and things. But uh, she's she's 20 years old. She's got uh, terminal kidney disease. So whatever it takes to kind of get her through happily in her final year or years here, uh, that's what we're trying to do. I love real people. I just love it. Okay. <laughs> Share with us what you mean by embrace your inner imposter. Oh, well, it's because I'm always hearing from people saying, oh, you feel like an imposter. You've got to fight that syndrome. You know, the, If you feel like an imposter, you're not really a fake. You're there because you deserve it. And it's all, it, it, it's, it's something that, that, uh, uh, you you should be proud of that you are ab- you are there in whatever position that you're feeling like an imposter in, and I, I think that's baloney. Actually, um, I think the biggest problem we have in society today is often a misplaced overconfidence rather than underconfidence. And what being an imposter is is often sort of a sort of a legitimate fear and lack of confidence because you're moving into something that's that's kind of scary for you and that you haven't done before, so you don't really know for sure you can do it. And by golly, I think it's a great thing if you feel pretty darn nervous about it because that opens your mind to being uh, to being careful and to actually listening and changing in the way that you need to in order to be successful at what whatever you're working at. I can tell you that in my engineering classes, for example, it is far more likely that the person who comes into my class and they're like, me and I got this. I am really, I'm going to be so successful. It's far more likely that that person is going to fail than the person who comes in and says, you know, I'm, I'm way older than everybody else in here. I'm not really sure I can do this. I, I'm really just very unconfident about everything, that person has a far higher likelihood of being successful just because they're going to pay attention and actually try to learn about things. And when they have errors, they're going to correct them. So if you feel like an imposter or a fake, whatever whatever you're trying to start doing or are doing, I, I'm like, congratulations, <laughs> join the club with me because I'm always <laughs> feeling like a fake. And it's, it's actually worked out pretty well for me so far. No kidding. <laughs> All right. We're running short on time. Uh, throughout your book, you offer what you call key mind shifts. I love them. Share one or two with us and please flesh them out in the limited time we have in terms of how they're beneficial. Oh, gosh. A key mind shift. I think that um, if one of them is is simply this idea that if you feel like a fake, that's, that's a good thing, and, and you can change from it. And then I think just um, being, being willing to step in and grow and, uh, and it embrace the part of yourself that, that is willing to try new things. You know, that's, that's, um, that's one of the things that people often don't realize is that their past, if their past is really different from whatever they're trying to move into, that is one of their biggest assets. Um, they often don't realize that, let's say that they're, they're um, for example, one individual I knew was he was a musician, and he decided to become a doctor. Well, being a musician doesn't seem to have anything to do with becoming a doctor. How could you possibly be successful? Well, he found out that even though he had previously flunked math and science, but what had happened was he had given a uh, a a concert for pediatric oncology patients, and he found out how much it, you know, how much those patients really needed great medical care. And he thought, you know, I'd like to be able to to add to that too. Um, that if I do that, I'll be able to help kids and not have to walk away like I do after a concert. 
And so anyway, he decided to become a doctor and found out that learning music actually taught him to focus and concentrate. So when he really did turn his mind to learning math and science, he actually became successful at it to his own surprise. I mean, it wasn't easy. Um, and he learned that if he, uh, if he didn't just assume that he was going to be, uh, if he got things wrong, it must be the professor, but instead he changed himself, that that was, that worked, um, and so he started changing himself more. And now, as a doctor, he he's found that he can listen um, to the heart sounds, and he's really good at being able to pick out heart sounds way better than other students because of his past as a musician. And he also is more empathetic and, and listens to patients because he's used to listening when he's um, when he's playing with others, um, you know, as a musician. It's so a great his story. background, yeah. I'm sorry, Professor. Really helpful. Yeah, we have run out of time. I want to suggest to everybody out there: you get the book Mind Shift. You go to barbaraoakley.com and you check out this online course that two million people. Uh, will tell you it's the greatest thing since mother's milk. I don't know what else to say. I want to thank you for your work, Professor, and for your willingness to share it with us today. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, Believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.